Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Welcome back to the Diverse Tech Founders podcast. Here today, I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we had a meetup with several entrepreneurs and investors, not just venture capital, but also real estate, and got the opportunity to participate in a pretty phenomenal Q&A session with my brother here, Pedro Moore, who was representing uh, the venture capital side. I was representing the venture capital attorney side, and we were able to tag team the conversation, which was great. Uh, And I was very grateful to have you in the room because you provided some insights that uh, I think only you could. So let's get into it. So the audience and people listening to this right now can benefit from your experience because you have a pretty unique background. When we first met online in terms of our video call, you mentioned that your family has been entrepreneurs and sort of passed that legacy on to you. So maybe can you talk about your childhood, your childhood self, and if your childhood self would be friends and like and enjoy and appreciate the man that you've become? Uh, th- yes. Uh, well, first, thank you for so much for having me on this uh, program. And it's great to actually meet you in person. Because like you said, we went online. It was a great conversation. So it was great to finally actually meet you, shake your hand and all that good stuff. Um, but to answer your question, it was my grandfather. My grandfather had his own uh, carpentry company, which down here in Maxton, North Carolina, which is probably about another two or three hours from Charlotte. So it's the country country, I like to call it, where it's one house every 16 miles. <laughs> he was able to just take his hands and just build stuff. He's been building stuff. Um, he passed away when he was 95, but he'd been building stuff in his 80s and early 90s with his own hands. And so he, he was a model for my life in general. He's been married 70 something years in the entrepreneur spirit. So what he also had is a farm and he sold watermelon, cantaloupe and all that good stuff. He had a couple of pecan trees. And out of all his grandchildren, I was the main one who voluntarily helped him whenever I'll come down from Delaware, pick up some pecans during the fall, go out in the garden, get some um, cantaloupe, uh, watermelon, and we'll take it to like the little uh, grocery store that's in town. If it was like pecans, I would sell it directly to the grocery store. And uh, But if it was fruit or uh, like cantaloupes and all that, we all pull up like Jay-Z did back in the day selling his music. We'll pull up to the uh, parking lot, open the trunk, and just start selling cantaloupe outside of his trunk. And that was the first taste of commerce. And I don't know how old I was, maybe six, seven, eight, somewhere around that age bracket. And to me, the win was the fact that I didn't have to ask my mom for bubblegum money. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I mean, I, did I make much? probably like two or three dollars but you know when you're five or six or whatever age i was and that's just enough to get you some m&ms that's that's accomplishment you know what i mean so but anyway but that's that's where that entrepreneurial uh, spirit was activated i didn't know what it was at the time i just liked the fact that i was able to make my own money and i had to ask anybody for were you actually making sales or were you just handing your grandfather the cantaloupe when an order was placed so a little bit of both whenever the order was placed sometimes just hand it straight to the people but um, there were a couple of times where i was able to kind of bring people in definitely the grocery that was definitely a direct sale i mean my, my grandfather or one of my aunts probably helped set set it up for me i had to go in there with my bag and hand deliver 
and he gave me some money back. You know what I mean? So I was able to, now granted, he probably hustled me. I, you know what I mean? <laughs> it was probably worth more than what, uh, what I got, but I didn't know. I just saw a dollar coming back and I thought that was a win. You know, so, uh, but definitely the grocery store, I had a, it was a lot more direct selling that way. That's cool. And it shows in how you communicate now, just kind of the insights. Yesterday, we had a number of people in the room who had an environmental background. It just seems like you're able to be in a lot of different places and spaces and arenas and industries, which serves you well as an investor because you have a variety of places that you can go. But if we stay on this topic of when you were much younger, uh, can you describe for us your earliest experiences with technology, with innovation? Because you are now in the tech space. You grew up, you know, kind of being able to go to your grandfather's farm with the pecans and the cantaloupe. But when did you go from the fields and the vines to, you know, silicone and circuitry? Sure. Uh, great question. So there's a little bit of a journey of discovery. So entrepreneurship was definitely something of excitement. I always had that bug. Uh, I was the kid. You know, everybody has kids in school that sell candy. I sold uh, music, candy, whatever. I used to sell. Uh, my mom got mad because she would buy some of the com uh, X-Men comic books and stuff like that because uh, that's what I wanted. And then eventually I ended up selling to people, you know. And so cause she was mad. I was like, why don't I buy it if you're going to sell it? But anyway, when I got in high school, uh, I'm sorry, college, and it's going to probably date me some, HTML was the code at that time. This is also the reason why I'm, I'm an advocate for exposure because I took a class, it wasn't even really a, a code class, but it was a sociology class, but they made us build websites and use HTML code. Depending on the age of the person listening, just to kind of give you some context where it was a code where you, you, you can make little uh, little whistle sounds and have like a little cursor that would drag with the, with the, with the cursor. Uh, depending on your age, you a person you will know what that means, but I enjoyed it and I actually did really good in the class, but the downside was I've always, I was studying business, but no one told me, Pedro, stick with coding, stick with that. No one told me that. And I was so fixated on business because in the world, I'm thinking entrepreneurship, business, you gotta have a business degree. And no one really told me that you really even learn business after school, you, you know what I mean? Like now I kind of advocate where if you wanna learn business, great, but also learn something that's quantitative, like law, like engineer, something that, that you can measure, is, you can really use your hands to get, get dirty with. Because like I study marketing, marketing you can learn after school, you know what I mean? Management you can learn after school, right? And those are the degrees I have. And so I just wish someone would have said, Pedro, stick with that, you know what I mean? And so I was a kid also that took apart remotes for curiosity, never really knew how they work, so I just took them apart. Fast forward, and the good part I will say to kind of connect to my exposure to venture is that at the University of Delaware, I made a little history where I founded the Entrepreneurship Club on campus, which that club still in existence today. And so I said, I took something from Diddy a long time ago. He said, make history. So you know how people, you go to college, you, you, you want to get stuff on your resume. You want to be like a vice president of a club, president of a club. And I was like, what can be better than that? So I said, how about being a founding president? And so that's what I did. And he, one of the students um, who joined, he's out of Philly. He ended up raising some money. He runs his own startup company out of Philly. And that's how me and him met um, years ago. But anyway, there was one of our guest speakers. He had a venture fund. I didn't even know what venture fund was. I just saw that he was a guy that advocated for entrepreneurship. So I said, boom. He used to put on conferences. 
I volunteer to go to that, right? I like we, one of the things that we heard at the Access uh, Grammy. Yeah, one of the things you're talking about partnering, and, and that way, that was my way of partnering because I don't know if I shared this with you. I don't have the typical background. I don't have an engineering background. I don't have a degree from any of the Ivy League schools. I don't have a master's. I only took one course in finance, right? But I partnered in this sense. I partnered. In, I know working for him, but but by the association, being with that guy, it made my personal brand and my knowledge and expertise level up. So through that journey, that's how I kind of got into it because he had an opening at his firm. I already had a pre-existing relationship with him because he saw my work I did at UD, and he said, "You know what? Let me give this brother a shot." And that's kind of how my opening came to the world of venture. I love that. Let's slow down before we speed up again, because I think a lot of people are interested in what do I need to know? Because I was watching something today with a successful entrepreneur that I met in law school, and she was talking about how imposter syndrome crept up and really prevented her from being successful. Now she's all over Forbes. Shout out to Kike Onawende of BYP Network. So can you talk about what helped you overcome that, given that you didn't have things that a lot of people think that they need, like getting an MBA, you know, all of this technical background and expertise and how you were able to go from a standing start into venture capital? I think I suffer from that too, probably even still today a little bit because of what you, for example, I remember in the very beginning, we'll have these dinners where all these investors come in and they up there spitting everything. And I'm like clueless. I'm trying to act like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so every time someone says something, so I've learned how to nod my head in agreement with somebody and little things like that. I don't know, there's probably some psychology around this, but it, it makes people bring you in. And so, and they feel like you're on the same level sometimes. But the reality is I was clueless these guys are in uh, from came from Yale, Harvard, and they're talking about the dealers they did, and I'm sitting there just you know eating eat my potatoes like oh yeah oh yeah uh huh. And when they say something, and I see everybody's nodding her head, yeah, I'm like yeah, I agree, I agree, just just to chime in. But I, I was clueless, and there were times whereas because the thing is you're learning on the fly, and there are times when people will kind of check you. There was another time someone actually questioned me, it's like hey, I thought you would have known some of that stuff. And it, it messed with me because he was right, but at the same time, it was okay. I, I, this took a little bit of time for me to process. I was a little taken down by that, but I had to realize, well, Pedro, he's also probably comparing you to, to a kid who just started out a VC firm, but went to Yale. You know what I mean? Went to Harvard. You didn't have all of that. You didn't, so you learned a lot of things on the fly like you just discovered the concept probably a couple years prior, so you can't expect for you to have the same knowledge of everyone. And to be frank, what I've learned too now is, is that really, it's about the performance. It's not about terminology, because you can Google that. And I think that's what trips us up the most. Do you gotta be the person that has knowledge of every single thing? No. A lot of times you just got to know that, for example, like if you're a firm that if you're a fund, what is the biggest metric? Can you pick a good deal? Right. Because I know people who are very knowledgeable about all the details of a fund terminology, but their fund did not perform well. Point is, is that now we're seeing other people who don't have all that, but built a company and sold it for a lot of money. And there's people who have master's degrees 
built companies and the companies failed. When did you learn what a good deal was? After it was sold. It's like, yeah. But good question. And the reason why I say after it was sold uh, for a profit, I should say that too, is because like you have all these educated guesses and all that can go out the window. For example, like Shark Tank deals, I've um, I've learned some patterns um, over the years. Uh, doesn't mean that it's going to guarantee success, but ones that really do well are consumer facing and consumer products. But then to add on an extra layer to that is that that company already has to have some momentum already before they even get on the show. Have a good patent, provisional patent around the actual product. They already have to have a good following, a good system already in place, and something that it's almost a practical use case for all America. Bomba Socks is one of the things that Damon John was part of, and I got to work on that deal, early part of it. And they're like everywhere. And you think about, I'm trying to think of some more companies too, and you're going on Shark Tank not to increase your brand awareness, that's kind of like the extra benefit, but you're looking for that strategic vessel to really help catapult to success. You can also get on Shark Tank and be too premature, meaning that you have something good, but it's not ready, to, and, and as a result, you didn't get the benefit from all that traffic. Yes, a lot of traffic came, but it didn't necessarily come to turn into like actual dollars to help move you to the next level. And so having that infrastructure already built, meaning some sales, you already got a team, you got marketing engine already in place. And so when you get on there, you find that strategic investor, you land a deal, the show airs. Now you can absorb all that traffic and really benefit from that, you know? And so those are some of the companies I've noticed personally um, that seem like they have a, they, they do better. Okay. I have two questions, sure. but I'm going to take them one at a time. So the first one is, you mentioned how valuable consumer-facing products are on Shark Tank. Although when you go to these different meetups and different startup cities and ecosystems, they're like, you know, uh, B2C is hard. Consumer-facing is hard. B2B is easier. The sales are, you know, maybe more predictable. They buy quicker. You know, convincing consumers to buy your product can be tough. Why do you say that consumer-facing products do well? Is it just the Shark Tank angle, or do you think there's something more there? Great question, and, and I should preface it well, or, or clarify, too, is that you know these Shark Tank companies are not all the traditional VC path type of companies, too. And our, the old fund I was at was a B2B SaaS solution. So, so there's some truth that, yes, if you're... I was talking to the guy uh, yesterday at the conference, because he's trying to build a consumer-facing marketplace, and... Doing his personality, I was like, man, you, you, you'll do great if you had enterprise sales because you have that that um, strong sales mentality, presentation mentality. So in, in one respect, so yes, I, in my opinion too, enterprise sales and all that I think is e e B2B is easier because easier is probably relative to the person. But in theory, it could be easy because, you know, once you build something, now you just knock on doors to people and they give you a monthly retainer for whatever the case may be. So there is that ease of path to revenue with consumer facing. It is harder in a sense that unless you're really good at marketing, like there is another consumer product. Uh, he's not on Shark Tank, but um, he, he's a fellow uh, UD graduate. I'm going to shout him out on here, give, give him a little plug, uh, 6 a.m. run. It's a consumer product, um, uh, nutrition for runners, basically. 
but he has a marketing background, um, and but he has done bootstrap, raised some funding just from some local angels, but bootstrap and, and is growing. But I think to his advantage is because he knew marketing and he knew how to build the systems in terms of building the sales funnel inside of you, the marketing funnel inside of the platform, getting understanding the analytics and all that. Now he is starting to do more B2B as in B2B to C as in going through uh, retail. So that does help, but he started off going direct to consumer. So I think it comes down to the personality or the knowledge base of the founder and what their strength and their weaknesses are. There's another company who has done well that Damon John is part of called SheFit. Like she was already an Instagram influencer and she had built a great product and she so she, she already knew the game of consumer facing, right? She already knew how to do that. And since the show, the show just magnified it. You know what I mean? What she was already doing. Not to say that she wouldn't agree that I think B2B is is, is easier. Because even B2B, that's a, that's a lot of prospecting and that's a whole nother skill set. So are people, Eve, can they even do that? Can you cold call, cold email, and do a presentation to decision makers that manage millions and millions of dollars of, of, of a budget. You know what I mean? Do you even know how to get so in a way you could say B2B is easy? It all depends on on the person's skill set and person I'm gonna say also if you want to talk about it, I would say also personality because like I said the guy probably knew I'm referring to the, with that really good presentation in the beginning, he I don't my personal opinion is because he has this really Dom, he can he can really control the stage type of presence. I really think he would do stronger at B two B sales, but direct to consumer, he can probably do it. But I don't think that would be his strength. Why? 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 Uh, just because there's a there's a level of patience. I think there's a so there's I think there's a psycho psychological thing because I kind of suffer from it too, where. Because he kind of alluded to it yesterday. He's like, yeah, I'm trying to build this. I need all this team. Because he, 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 he doesn't have the patience. And he wants, pe he wants that gratification of a dollar or some kind of transaction to come in. When you're doing consumer facing, you may not have that right away. You know, you may not have that. You do a lot of this presentation, a lot of this marketing and get a little traction. And it may take longer. However, B2B... If you had a software, and let's just say your pricing is ten grand a month, right? And you do all that same work, but all you, but you're great at going to networking events, a cold calling, or whatever, doing all those things to get through those decision makers. It just takes a card, you follow up, and then now you can get in the room and you can sell them. You know, so some people don't have that mindset, and there's nothing good or bad. For example, there was one lady I was consulting with the other day. Not a tech star or anything like that, but she does a lot of B2B sales and she's new at it. She has the mindset of it, the, the personality for it. But with B2B, there's a lot of like meetings. I'm talking to you. Um, you like it. And then you go cold. Then I got to follow up again. Talk to you some more. Trying to will you in. I might have to take you out to a dinner. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it's that courtship. This, this is the game. You know, it's okay. Just give them some time and they'll follow up. But it's that type of battle. So that's why I say neither one is right or wrong. It just comes down to what is your appetite? That's super helpful. And I appreciate that breakdown because it's something that an early entrepreneur, they're faced with that choice and decision, which yeah. route they're going to go. And it's good to know that it's really dependent on them. You mentioned provisional patent. And I'm not a patent attorney, but my loose understanding is that a provisional patent is good for a year. And it basically just puts you in line. It doesn't give you a patent. It doesn't, you know, 
last forever or even the full length of a of a traditional patent or a non-provisional patent is just a year of time where you have some room to breathe a bit. But after that year is up, it's over with, and then you either you know file a new one or you go what people probably typically uh, think about when they think about a patent, a non-provisional patent mm-hmm. that really protects you, but you can use the date from earlier, which is a benefit. So if you go on to a show like Shark Tank or do you invest in companies that don't have that or are still working on that? What is sort of, as an investor, what do you hear when they say that they have it versus them not having it? Like, how do you think about that as an advisor to investors and an investor yourself? Great question. And I actually want to correct myself. I meant to say utility patent. But but still, but I'm glad you shared that because that is the first step before you even get that. And so a utility patent is, is around the functionality. And, and of course, I'm no attorney either. It's basically around the functionality of the product. So I will say that even at the venture fund, we, we've done deals where the patent was pending as well. So and pending typically was around when it is that provision is kind of that waiting period uh, or maybe after just waiting to actually be approved or not. I think it, it comes down to because because you can still operate. And sell with the with the pendant patent. So pendant patents, I think, are okay when you go when you go into the due diligence side of things. It's really digging into is there a likelihood of it really being approved, and that's where investors start, like to dig in to understand the functionality of it. They might even want to have a conversation with your lawyer just to just just to have understanding. Like there's still always a possibility it could get rejected but they want to hear the likelihood of it being approved and that can give the investor more confidence to still invest even though the patent's still pending. And, and is the utility patent, the function, the, the utility patent around the core essence of the actual product? Like, I'm gonna just pick all these, uh, I have some Lucky Jeans, uh, uh, Lucky Jeans uh, on. Really, I started buying them because I'm, I'm a thick guy and I couldn't find any, you know, Pants, you know, I can't go to H and M because my arms sometimes can't even fit in the jeans, right? You know, so. But anyway, the what, what I think they designed them because they fit and they have some elastic to it. I don't know who I don't think they own a patent to that because I think other people do it as well. But my point is, if I was a apparel company and I'm selling, I'm raising capital to be the first one to create these elastic fit jeans, then the value proposition is the elastic part of it, so that way thick thighs can get in, right? But then if I got the patent around maybe the um, the zipper, then it's like conflicts. It's like, well, no one's buying the jeans for the zipper. We're buying the jeans for the elastic side. Now, if the patent was pending around the elastic part of the jean, then yes, we'll st- still move forward because part of the due diligence is, okay, are there other patents already around, utility patents around the elastic uh, part of a jean that might kick you know, might reject the patent. If not, then then there might be a strong likelihood of it being approved. So we still may invest. And I say me, me as in Pedro, I'm not giving, because, you know, it really comes down to investors and what they decide to do. But if I were advising or another investor, I probably would, assuming the, the lawyer will say there's a strong likelihood of being approved, I will still, and assuming everything else is okay, I will still say, hey, let's move forward with it, right? Try our luck with it. And so, um, but that's the context is, is it's the utility of the function. There are design patents out there, but they don't have as much weight as a utility patent, but that's the reason why it, that utility patent has to be around the functional piece 
And in my opinion is that it got to be around the the why someone buys. So since we're on the topic of due diligence, if you will, for perfectly fine if you don't want to address this, but I know that people are super interested in this topic. Is there anything that you could see in due diligence if you were already interested that would make you pause, stop, get out of dodge, whether you communicate that with the potential founder or investor or not? Yeah, there's probably a lot depending on the stage. So I like to call them red flags, right? Uh, so... Which you talked about yesterday, different yeah, red flags. Yeah, things. yeah. So, so red flags can be a lot of, and it can come a lot. So, I, there was one company. She said she had a patent. I'm trying to remember, but 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 it wasn't a patent through the formal process going through the U.S. Patent and Trademark. Uh, yeah, no, it was common law. I think she was trying to say a common law patent or something like that. And again. Me, the, the, the VC of the guy, I'm looking at him, I'm like, and he like, he's more the guy who brought, I was working, at this time I was working for the VC fund. And we're both looking at each other like, dude, have you heard of common law? Common law patent? I was like, that's something new. We, and, and granted, we're like, okay, you know, we've done a couple deals. You know, we're no experts, but, um, but like she was saying, and that's what her thing was. She was like, at common law, she was like, okay, well, like she showed us some stuff and she couldn't really show us anything. So. Boom, immediate red flag, right? Another little thing is too is is um uh and this is this is hard, but I know it could be cap table management, meaning depending on what the structure is, sometimes you know you're that's why you see people have down rounds, is that maybe you raise too much at a too much of a high valuation and your performance isn't matching it. And that can that can trigger a down round and that could be a red flag, meaning that okay, I'll give you money, but it's gonna be at a lesser valuation. Right, you know what I mean. I like I love everything about it, but you are not this price. Either you accept my money, you go down, or if not, we're gonna move on. You know, so those are I've seen those are as as red flags. These are red flags, but they can be fixed. I think you mentioned it about the uh, the IP under the company. If the IP is under the individual, the founder, we're gonna want that transferred. No checks will be given until that's that's done. Contracts. You know what I mean. If you're saying that. You have your enterprise sale and you're saying that you're, you know, you got all these major contracts. We want to look at it and see, okay, great. Like, and then also what does the contract spell out? You know what I mean? Are there some language in there that prevents you from, I, I did this is not a company I did due diligence on, but they just happened to say something in conversation, which I didn't, I didn't impress. Got the feeling that they got some good clients, but I got a gut feeling from what I've heard that there's a clause in there that wants them to be almost exclusive to them. And so that will be a red flag because yes, it's great. It gives you immediate satisfaction that you're able to generate some money. And you know, I, I think they'll probably generate maybe 10 grand a month or something like that, which is great for an early stage company, right? But the downside is if that if that clause is in there, you're you're done. You know, you're, you you can't grow and no VC wants that because I want, because I'm going to say, I want you to do what you did there all across the nation. But based with that, you sound like you can't do that. So you, you're, you're stopped. So, so the contract, they're going to probably want to look at the contract, going to want to probably talk to customers, you know, because they want to know that one, does the product really perform? You know what I mean? To your satisfaction. You know what I mean? Another one that you mentioned yesterday was the team and the early hires and what people would do with oh, the money. Oh, yeah, about that. yeah, yeah. So this is for venture. A lot of some, so some of these things can go for venture or or or, or, uh, or if you're just a high growth company, they're not going down a path of venture. This is because a little bit different. You go down because you, you kind of build. I don't want to say build as you want, but for VCs, there is a there is um, 
So when you build a company, right, the first thing is most important is product. After that is marketing and sales. So as you build, it's it's like you want emphasis around those because those are the things that have to move the needle. And so that's why you always hear that they want to see in the perfect world, um, it doesn't always work like this, but in a perfect world, they want a business and a tech guy. Because that, and also the reason why they want them as co-founders, because it's going to be a little bit cheaper, at least in the beginning, because then now you know there's someone that has a vested interest who can lead the needle in terms of technology development of the whole company versus always using. So like if, I'm not saying this will be a red flag, I know people have to do this, but it is a, it will be a conversation. So if you're a not, especially for our people, a lot of us are like somebody raised their hand. I don't know if you did. You did it, right? Um, ask how many people are technical and who, and who are not, because you are absolutely right. I'm not. I'm not a technical person, but most of them are really good business, and we don't have a technical person, right? And so what happens is we go find a firm to build it, which is okay, but that may not be a long term strategy, because firms that can build something, they're a service provider, just like the guy that fixed a, a plumber just like a, uh, a marketing agency, just like a person who fixed a roof, service providers are good and bad. And if your thing crashes, they'll get to you when they can get to you because they may have other clients. And a VC wants, in a, again, a perfect world, a VC wants somebody on staff at the, at the company, preferably the founder. If something goes down, they want that person already to know to bring it back up. They don't want to hear that, oh, well, we already sent the message to the uh, firm. They said they get to us back on Monday. They don't want to hear that. Thank so, you for joining this week's episode of Diverse Tech Founders Podcast. I'm Abraham J. Williamson, and we had yet another great guest to pop in. And if you enjoyed today's podcast recording, please give us a rating. You can do it right now on iTunes or Spotify or whatever, and we'll see you next week.